Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. All right. Happy Tuesday or Thursday, whenever this podcast <laughs> is going up. We are now twice a week, so we don't know. We are pumping out twice a week. We're on the podcast grind. If you appreciate mm-hmm. that, give us a rating review at iTunes or on Spotify, even though I don't think you can do it on Spotify. And I think iTunes is not called iTunes anymore. It's just the podcast app, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, I got to stop doing that because I always put, say itunes and link it uh from there so anyways if you're listening to it on your ios device there Mm -hmm. you go and you want to support jeff and myself feel free to leave us a rating review we greatly appreciate it we hope everyone is having a great start to your day assuming that i did well and uploaded this in the morning (laughs) (laughs) um so we're gonna be i like this um format and and people have said that they like this format as well how we talk about an investing topic right and then we answer some questions as well yeah um on on youtube hopefully they don't mind making the switch over but we really want to make the podcast part at least worth it we're not just gonna like cut it out as yeah and the podcast part will be uh that's over here will be uh, a specific topic so you can always just hear about that topic by listening to us on the podcast and then if you want to hear the q and a's which are often a lot shorter that's youtube yeah and so if you want to ask a question to be answered in the future feel free to dm me at focused compound or you can uh just send me a a, a message a tweet mm-hmm. right and i will I'll sort of screen capture them and keep them in the future for um future questions to pull from so um question that we've been asked a lot and i think it will make a good topic it's been what is Jeff's biggest mistakes of a mission and what has he learned from them? So not commission, so not from actually making the mistake. Right. This is from not making the mistake. The one that got <laughs> the, not making the decision to act. The one that correct. got away. The one that got away, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um so first one that comes to mind. Uh well the first one I've mentioned before is uh that I think is the worst. Uh, not in terms of the return that I gave out by, but just how obvious it was, it was DreamWorks animation. Mm-hmm. I said that before because it's just one that I was sure was worth more to other studios than it was trading for in the public market. So you that's did, just a dumb thing not to do. You did a lot of scuttlebutt on that company as well, right? I watched all the movies. Um, yeah, did lots of scuttlebutt. I went to some movies in uh, theaters. I uh, did quite an extensive uh, Excel stuff with it to be able to predict um what the eventual value of a movie would be based just on the opening weekend which turns out to be surprisingly easy to do so what's it's more that? accurate than you'd think what what's that just by using one? multiples and stuff that you can figure out if you know if it's a sequel and you know um basically if you know if a movie's a sequel what its opening weekend was and what its second weekend was so the percentage drop you can predict pretty well what its total value will be over time so those are the big factors mm-hmm. are you sort of in the buffet camp as well how errors of omission hurt more than actually making the mistake or do you not really think about it like that uh they have for me errors of omission have i don't want to say for everybody yeah I can some i've talked to some people who i'm surprised at some of the errors of commission that they can commit mm-hmm. so it can be worse to commit certain errors of commission mm-hmm. so i tend not to buy those sorts of things i would say but you know i bought some things with debt so it can happen uh but yeah errors of omission are Worse for the kind of investor that I am, 
but I do know people who have invested in, have put a lot of money, you know, put a lot of money into Valiant and invested in some things that were outright frauds and things like that. And so those can be very, very bad. You don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So what, um, so why did not, why didn't you buy DreamWorks? Uh, I think just it didn't uh, look cheap enough on sort of the basic value sorts of things. The price to book was never quite uh, really below one. The PE was never, you know, uh, a single digit PE, things like that. I think it was just a mistake that way, focusing too much on um, the numbers that way and not focusing enough on just that I knew it was worth more to uh, other people, you know. Other and how do you think you like overcome that, right? Like where's the fine line between like, okay, paying up because it is a great business mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, not paying because it's not a, a book value under one or at one or single digit PE. So yeah. like, how do you sort of differentiate that? I mean, today I think I would buy it because I think I've just changed as an investor a little bit that way. I think you have to get more confident in being able to, uh, in your own appraisal of things and be less focused on sort of what, uh, value investing books and things tell you spend more time away from those sorts of books and things and spend more time, um, making those decisions yourself. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that one is a particularly bad one, not because it went up a lot. I mean, I don't know if it would have been a little more than a double or something, probably, um, not a triple, but, um, that's bad just because it's so obvious. It's a common sense thing that I didn't do. Some other things are more like, I don't even know if people know this, but I looked very closely at Netflix at a very low price that it had, uh, to compare to today and stuff. And I don't mind that I didn't buy it then, but, uh, I don't, do you know what the price of Netflix is now? Yeah, I actually have it. Yeah. Had it pulled up from our last podcast. It yeah. is three hundred fifty-three, but the mar- market cap—I don't think they've split though. Yeah. But it's a hundred fifty billion dollar market cap. So I may have gone up seven times, five to seven times since so, when I looked at it. So what? Why didn't you uh, buy? It? I mean, we just kind of casually looking because you're interested in the business, or were you actually seriously looking as a potential investment? I, th- uh, I just thought um, if I was the head of a. Um, you know, a Time Warner or, or, or some company like that, uh, or Comcast, you know. Um, it was at a price that it would make sense to buy the whole thing, definitely. I thought it was worth more to media-type companies. Um, but just when you compared it versus what other properties were selling for and what its future was going to be. Um, it's not something where I have a lot of faith in their business model long-term or anything, but it's going to be around in some form. Um, I mean, even if the stock one day goes to zero, it'll come out of bankruptcy and be the exact same thing. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the asset will be there forever. So, yeah, no, I just thought it it, it was worth more. I mean, what did you say the market cap was now? Um, $150 billion? Okay, so divide that by five or whatever. I thought that the um, that any, you know, media company would be happy to borrow $30 billion and buy it. You yeah. know, that they would be worth it um, to do that. They're going to need that outlet and stuff. Look how much they're going to put into all sorts of things of developing their own things to compete with that. Look how much Disney put into getting control of Hulu as part of, you know, their deal. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, that's not when I mind because, you know, um, in terms of cash flows and things, that, that business was seriously, has always been and always will be, ser- you know, seriously financially uh, at risk. It makes a lot of promises to pay for things very far into the future. So it's risky. So what have you learned from these omissions? Is it just focus more so on the business? Don't let maybe a few multiples kind of. Yeah. Think less about make multiples. You stop. Yeah. yeah. But it's not just the business, I should say, in all these cases. Um, it's that I thought the business was worth um, more than it was trading at, more, worth more to a private uh, owner. You know, and those mm-hmm. are the things that make sense. So, uh, so there's lots of other cases of mistakes of omission. In terms of like the actual return, I'm thinking um, 
I don't know what the price of this one is right now, but probably one of the biggest ones would have been um, Amarim Cork, so uh, which should be Portuguese. So Corda Sierra uh, Amarim, something like that. And uh, it uh, was one I did not buy and probably should have. It had some risk because it was in Portugal at the time when um, you had, uh, do you remember the pigs? Everyone was concerned about Portugal, oh, yeah, Italy, yeah, yeah. Ireland, Greece, and Spain, mm-hmm. and uh, those sorts of things. And Portugal was particularly, maybe not the worst, but it was pr- particularly bad. It, w- it was would have been considered more closer to like Greece or something in terms of whether it would stay part of the EU and everything as compared to like, you know, uh, Italy or something, which seems unlikely that that would break off. Um, and uh, it was a not super high return on capital business, but it was a hidden champion. It was actually in the book Hidden Champions. I knew it well. Um, so it had some debt and there were some issues with what currency the debt would have to be repaid in versus what currency they'd be in if Portugal ever did leave the EU or something like that. So it was sort of macroeconomic concerns on it. Um, but that's one I probably should have bought. It was very, very, very cheap. And why didn't you? Uh, that reason. Got it. The, 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 if it had no debt, I would have bought it. Do you think you would have bought it today? I mean, cause you said like a dream works. No. So you think how you, you've sort of changed. Nope, I don't think I've changed from that one. No. How do you think you've changed, um, you know, as an investor from DreamWorks as and maybe Netflix mm-hmm. as opposed to today? Yeah, and I don't think I would buy Netflix. Got I think it's too risky. Uh, DreamWorks was not that risky at all, and I think I would buy it today, yeah. Um, I think I've changed that I just pay less attention to the, the those sorts of things in terms of the multiples and things and more in terms of just what I think the business is worth and what I pay for. It's so common sense that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing I always tell people about is that you know, in terms of the mistakes and things, people need to use more, uh, more common sense and just thinking about it overall as the business, as opposed to getting too worked about, you know, the PE ratios and things like that. There are plenty of stocks that are a bad purchase at six times earnings. Um, and then in other cases, there are companies that are perfectly good at 20 sometimes. I mean, we bought a stock for the um, managed accounts uh, about a year ago or something, which I guess technically on a looking backwards case might have had a P around 20 or something. But we knew that for tax cut reasons and things that were going to flow through that it wasn't that expensive. Mm-hmm. And so I would have been happy to buy it at, say, 13 times earnings or something. And I knew that realistically in a year's time or something, their earnings would be like that. Mm-hmm. And so I just bought it. So that's an example. I mean, maybe if I was thinking the way I was about DreamWorks, well, you don't buy something that's 20 times earnings. But, you know, it's going to be 13 basically in a year if it doesn't move up in price, you know? Mm-hmm. Why do you think Buffett, and he always talks about a huge air of omission for him was Google. Yeah. Why do you think he didn't buy Google? Was it he just couldn't, and he's talked about it, he just didn't understand the technology? I mean, but I mean, so many other companies were, I think he understood it. Why do you think he just didn't, you know, sort of pull the trigger and buy it? It takes a long time. He was looking at Burlington Northern for a long time at railroads generally before buying them. Um, he was looking at probably things like Apple for a long time before buying them. It takes a while to realize that something new is really like something old that he knew well. And he knows advertising supported media stuff. He was buying things for Geico and seeing, you know, how the Geico was buying ads, I mean, and seeing how effective it was. So, you know, so he missed out on Google that way. It's the combination, though. Google wasn't super cheap, so you have to know, you have to be willing to pay up a little. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's the technology element. It's new. When you have something that's new and that's not super cheap, that, can be, that can be hard. Yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you have any uncertainty, you don't want to pay a really high price. So if I was uncertain about the future of, uh, like give, giving the uh, the DreamWorks example, it, just because I'm saying that I made a mistake by not buying it when it was cheap, um, because it's say, let's say it was at 1.2 times book and 
16 times earnings or something doesn't mean that I, it, that decision's still pretty easy compared to if it was two or three times book or something. You know, it becomes difficult with something like Google it was growing very fast. It's easy to miss those things that were growing very mm-hmm. fast. Yeah, sure. So I want to take this. Maybe we'll make this a podcast about mistakes. Okay. So what do you think is the biggest era of commission actually making the mistake that you've made in your investing? Oh, life? that's easy. Selling too quickly. And that's selling because you want to raise cash in a portfolio instead of because you have another idea or what? Sometimes because I have another idea too. Uh-huh. Yeah, both. Selling something that I think is really uh, good. I'll give you two examples. I sold FICO too soon and I sold Nintendo too soon. Why did you sell both of those? They went up a lot and uh, <laughs> I had something else, you know? Uh-huh. And then was it just the new company generally didn't perform as well and like Nintendo and FICO still did a, a good job even though it was in yeah. your mind expensive or what? Yeah, and then I don't think they were that expensive. I just think that you know when something goes up a lot, there's a real danger that you might sell it. That is a real problem you have to try to um, guard against. And how do you do that? Um, it's difficult. You have to keep imagining that you're buying the stock today, not that it matters how mm-hmm. much it went up in the past. Because everybody says, um, you know, one of the hardest things to do investing is averaging up. Right. Right. When you get new capital, mm-hmm. or or you just want to put more capital to it because the story's changing or getting better or whatever. Yep. That's true. Uh, now you don't want to get caught up in that and like changing uh you know getting more and more positive on it because you feel that the stock going up is a reinforcement of your no, ideas yeah, about yeah, it yeah, yeah. which i think happens to a lot of people but yeah um yeah and and i should point out like in the case of um nintendo and fico where i invested in them and made money in them and stuff if you do like a what percentage did it go up while i owned it per year versus what percentage did it do later like the accelerate the rate of acceleration was higher when i owned it Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. See, you always imagine when you buy a stock that if you think it's going to return 20% a year for the next 10 years, it's going to do it in this beautiful, smooth 20% a year. Within, within what really the, happens is it goes up 120% one yeah, year, then sure. it goes down a little, then goes up. And it, it's hard in those years when it goes up 100% or something, or even 50% or, or whatever, uh, a very big number, let's say, especially if it's a very big number while the market isn't doing that. It can be hard, and, and especially over very short periods of time, we get that a lot. I mean, I've talked sometimes about stocks that we own that went up a lot recently and stuff. I talk publicly a little bit about a stock that did that. And I do get questions from people immediately about, okay, so are you selling the stock now? Um, and people saying, well, I've missed it because it's gone up, you know, and things like that. Whereas when a stock I own has gone, someone knows I own a stock or something and it goes down, they want to talk about that and, oh, this is an opportunity in that one. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, sometimes it is. But there are pretty big differences between the stocks you like the most and the ones you don't like as much. Mm-hmm. So when the ones you don't like as much are the ones that go down, it doesn't change things as much as uh, you might think. Like people think, I guess that y- you like them all equally or something. And sure. that would be great if I could create a portfolio that I liked all, you know, five or 10 or whatever stocks equally. Um, but it's not. And unfortunately it does happen sometimes that the weaker stocks in it um, decline more. The ones you're less sure of. I don't want to say that like their upside is different or something, but I, you know, often other people start to recognize the certainty that you saw in the, um, you know, more uh, the ones that go up in price quickly sometimes are sort of the wide mode ones. Yeah. And so that's the issue that you have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, you know, there's lots of stocks where I liked the stock a lot as a business, talked about it, wrote about it, didn't buy it. So that's a mistake of omission. But I don't consider it one because, you know, everything kind of had to go right for it. So sure. I talked about like Copart and things like that. It doesn't bother me because, you know, it worked out for them and the returns and that was were always, good. That was always kind of a ex- more expensive stock too. Always expensive enough that if things hadn't worked out very well, 
um, you could have lost money in it. You know, mm-hmm. when we're talking about things that are 25, 30 times earnings or something, that's really pushing into the category of, uh, you know, it, it sort of has to do as well as your uh, hopes for it were. This, that's a high hurdle to clear. So that's very different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So going back to errors of commission, mm-hmm. so you would, you would say that for you it would be selling too soon? Yeah, selling too soon usually. Well, yeah, selling a stock that went up a lot too soon, sure. Um, but you have to be careful with that because I've sold stocks that went down after I bought them and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say selling a stock just because it's gone up a lot, not just because, it is more expensive and things like that. But um, selling a stock on the basis of the price going up yeah. has been a problem for me more. Yeah, Selling you, because I don't like the business as much has not been a problem. And you've written about it before, right? Mm-hmm. Have any of your sell decisions right. made a difference? I think that was actually the title, something along yep. those lines. Mm-hmm. And you, you said that um, you would have been better off just kind of holding it, correct? Yeah, that's true pretty much in a lot of cases. Um, there are some cases where that's not true. Uh, but the basic answer is if I sold for reasons just of price that it got more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically true. Now, why, don't, why wouldn't you ever just pair it back? That's a good question. Because you, but, you buy it all in one plop and you sell it all in one plop. Right. And you could just pair it back, which is something that... Uh, you know, like Peter Rab over, he, he talked about, um, you know, prior to Artco Capital... Mm-hmm. I think he said that um, one of his big things, he was an analyst and, and they mm-hmm. put like, um, or whatever position he was, I'm sorry if he was an analyst, but yeah. uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, right? And they okay. kept it at like 3% and they made a ton of money on it because whenever right. it would get to like 5 to 6% of the portfolio, they would just bring it back down to 3% right. or whatever the numbers right. were. Right. Single like digits. Sequoia didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, he gave, he gave that example and how, you know, they lost a ton because they didn't pair it back. You know, have you ever thought about sort of doing it like that or why do you tend to just do it all in one trade does it take out sort of like the bias side of it or like the mental game of investing yeah, it's just simplifying it. i don't i've we talked to someone recently about the uh, related topic about um should you sell some of this to buy some of that and and things in a way that um sort of mechanically would make sense that it should add to returns uh, i avoid thinking about trading it for the most part i want mm-hmm. to just focus on, i found to be overwhelmingly true that if I find it the best addition that I can make to returns in the managed accounts and stuff is if I find um, a really good business at a low enough price. So like whether it trades at eight or 11 times earnings or something, and should I sell it when it goes up from eight times earnings to 11 to pair back a little bit or something, doesn't seem to matter as much as finding something that I, you know, a really good uh, quality um, company that we're comfortable owning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I mean that based on my longer term experience investing not in the year that we've been doing the manager accounts because um, you can't measure those sorts of things over a year cool how do you think people can improve on like i guess their mistakes i mean because i feel like um for so many people making the errors of omission tend to hurt a lot more than errors of commission mm-hmm. if, do you think there's any sort of takeaway they can take away or or something that they can do to improve it is it just like like the way that you think about it when it comes to dreamworks does it hurt that you didn't invest in it or do you just kind of not even think about it? You just chalk it up as a learning experience no, and kind I of move on. I don't think about it and move on. Um, I don't have regrets those sorts of ways. A lot, a lot of people do. My biggest advice with that is to always make sure you pair off. Um, if you think you made a mistake doing something, always pair off the possibility of uh, other cases that were the decision would have worked the opposite way, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of like Copart, you, right? Right, right. So if you think you sold too fast or something, um, also look at cases where uh, you sold 
you know, so if you, let's say you think that you're, you sold some stock too fast, that's fine. And it may be a mistake that you made. But when looking back at that decision, make sure you try to gather together all the cases in which you sold something quickly to really look at and study it that way. Because I think I've talked before about how some people had asked um, when I did the senior diligence reports, whether it's a good idea to avoid stocks that have high short interest. Um, and the truth was, because uh, the two things people suggested were, well, maybe bad performing stocks and are maybe stocks that you pick that are more likely to perform badly have high short interest or um, are facing some sort of like existential threat or something, right? Uh, the problem is when you look at that, some of the worst performing stocks that I had written about uh, had those issues, but some of the best performing also had those issues. So it's not a mistake overall. You know, it's not something that you can fix overall. If you shouldn't just say, well, I won't buy stocks that are heavily shorted. If some of the stocks you bought that are heavily shorted performed really well, you need to look at it as a whole group thing. Got it. Cool. I think that's a great place to stop. We are going to switch over to our YouTube part of the of the show today. So if you want to join us there, go to YouTube.com. And can't believe I told him to go to YouTube.com. <laughs> go to YouTube and type in Focus Compounding. And we're going to finish uh, this part of the podcast there. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today on the podcast app or Spotify. We do greatly appreciate it, especially if you give us a rating and review. And if you don't, we still appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. Everybody have a great day. See you next podcast. Alrighty, we are back on the YouTube side of things. Want to thank everybody if you did come over here to listen to the rest of the podcast. This is where we are going to take questions, most likely from now on. So if you want to ask a question, go and DM me at Focused Compound on Twitter, and we will pull them for the next podcast. So someone says, and I'm guessing because I tweeted out our Focused Compounding checklist, okay, and on there um, we talk about um, the coefficient variation, the CV. Okay. So he he actually asked, he said, what is CV in what your CV, checklist? Yeah. But maybe you could sort of hit on why you use it and okay. how you like interpret it and think about it. Right. So what is CV? CV is coefficient variation, which is also sometimes called relative standard deviation, it's a dimensionless number, which means that you're taking a number and you're dividing by another number such that you don't have any units left over. So in this case, what we're talking about with that is, let's say you have a margin that averages 10% a year. And the standard deviation, which is a measure of um, how much variance, let's say, there is with something, how much it wobbles around, is um, 2%. A lot of people will look at that and say, okay, well, um, that means that margins vary by 2%. That's not important unless you take that 2%, divide into that 10%, and get sure. 0 0.2, uh, 0 0.2. And that's the number you want is the coefficient of variation. So um, companies that have very high margins or very low margins, if they have very little variation, that's what I'm looking for. So, you know, Costco, very low margins. But if you look at the coefficient of variation, it's actually not bigger than you would have at companies that have 30% margins, but those margins actually vary more um, when compared to the when scaled the when the variation is scaled right to the um, average in the margin so it's how much a number moves around versus its own average so it makes it's predictability of it essentially right it is a it's basically a measure of predictability so yeah. when and then when you think about valuing a company right if you could predict its sales and you could predict maybe like it's EBIT or EBITDA mm -hmm. or something if you feel a lot more comfortable when valuing it if it's more stable, if it's more predictable. Absolutely, yeah. So at Costco, that number might be 0 0.1 or 0 0.2. At Omnicom, something low like that. But then at many, many companies to look at, it might be one. Mm -hmm. So it might have a 10% margin, but actually, and you know, a couple years out of any decade, 
it actually the margin could be all the way up to 20% or all the way down to 0%. Yeah. These are things you can do very easily just by looking with your eyes at a chart, looking at 10 years of data, looking at a value line thing. They're not, I mean, statistically, we can write them down and include them in a checklist like you actually have to calculate this in Excel, but absolutely you can see these things for yourself just by looking at it. You can tell the difference between a margin that barely moves and a margin that moves around a lot. Everyone can go look at Costco's margins now and see that they barely move, and then, you know, go look at a iron ore company and see how much they move. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, good luck uh, valuing that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right, good, good, good. That's a good way to put it. Okay, next question. And uh, this is kind of actually sort of, I guess, in the accounting area as well. It says, how do you go about reading the footnotes to the financial statements? Do both of you read them in tandem with the financials or do you read the footnotes first? Uh, I read the financial statements first and the footnotes after. Yeah, me too. Same. And there's really no reason for that. I guess I just kind of like to, I mean, really, even before I, um, I guess when talking about reading a 10K, what I do is... Um, even before, I mean, I may read like the about section, you know, mm-hmm. learn about the business, but then I kind of automatically go and look at the financials. I don't know really? why. That's just kind of like the first thing I, mm-hmm. I enjoy doing. Um, and then I, I, I don't read the footnotes from there. I may go back up and read about the whole business through the 10K and then I'll read the footnotes when I kind of come back down again. Yeah, maybe we should talk about what the footnotes are to it. So footnotes are pretty extensive in a 10K. So we're calling them footnotes as if you have these financial statements and then there's, you know, a number one or two next to them and then down at the bottom there's going to be some little explanation. But in reality, these footnotes can be very long explanations of how they account for different things and, and stuff like that. And there's some standard ones that you would be looking at all the time. Big ones are like their uh, how they account for depreciation, how they account for inventory, some things like that. Those are the uh, some of the big ones that would vary a lot, I would think. What else? What red flags? What's something that would be a red flag to you if you're reading the footnotes? Um, well unusual ways of accounting for certain things would mm-hmm. be a f- uh, red flag. Um, so if, in, so we're talking about the footnotes as opposed to just something I recognize in the financial statements. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would be a, a big red flag um, would be uh, unusual things about how they book revenue compared to what I know about the industry books revenue. It's so like revenue recognition. Yep. Um, it can be, I don't want to say it's a big red flag or something, but if the depreciation is very different, mm-hmm. I've mentioned before, like in the cruise industry, for instance, people buy companies, buy cruise ships, and then they depreciate them over time. If you actually compare in certain years, the depreciation expense taken by different uh, cruise companies, they actually assume different useful lives for the, um, ships. Have you ever seen where they change the depreciation yes. schedule randomly? Mm-hmm. That's a red flag, right? Yeah. You can <laughs> see where they change how they uh, do those things. You can see a lot of times changing disclosure about things is more of the issue. So it's like they stop um, reporting constant currency or same store sales or something like that. They drop something like that. They put certain things together um, to be an issue that way. Uh, in terms of like footnotes, red flags, um, you know, related party transactions and things like that. Sure. Um, there's there's some examples. I think I mentioned to you, I don't think I mentioned this podcast, there was something where there were seemed to be um, borrowings uh, that were quite high interest compared to um, what you would, what the corporation overall would borrow at. And so I was concerned by that. So like if I see something where uh, a company in theory should be able to borrow at 6% a year, you know, from a bank or something, and yet I'm seeing these things where it's issuing preferred stock to people or notes receivable to people or something that's like, you know, 9 to 10% or something, then I'm wondering what is that? Is that a related party thing with them? Yeah, in yeah. that case, I was thinking this is some way of um, greasing some palms in terms of politicians and things, you know, bringing them into a, a – 
partnership or something for specific locations and things. And, you know, it just, they shouldn't be doing that. So that, that was a concern. What do you, what would you, and this is sort of, I guess, kind of different, but I just kind of thought about it. So how would you interpret a company spending like a lot of money on like the town where the headquarters is? Have you ever seen that? Like I, yeah. I was, um, I've been reading uh, the Frackers book yeah. and it was talking about chess. Have you gotten to this part? Cause I know you're reading that. No, no, no. It's talking about Chesapeake energy, how like yeah. Chesapeake spent like two spent like 250 million dollars to sort of like glam up the town where, where their HQ was in like yeah. uh, Aubrey's, um, you know, sort of rationale behind it was that, well, you know, if, if this is more of a hip area, we'll get better employees because more people yeah. move here and you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that, can, on that? That, that might be true. Uh, anything that manages sort of expectations about people and, you know, the uh, what they would say, the optics of it, yeah. uh, I don't like that way. So I, I did a post once a long time ago where I talked about, like, signs of something being a, a fraud or something, basically comparing it to behavior of someone who is a, a psychopath, you know. And so those sorts of things in terms of, of focus on style over substance, a lot of things about telling you what you want to hear, even where it wouldn't make sense for them to be telling you this thing or it doesn't make sense for them to be doing this themselves, uh, lots of things like that. In general, to be honest, having really high-profile people on your board, having... Um, it was like Theranos, right? Yeah. High-profile people on your board is not a sign I like to see. Giving a lot to charity and stuff in your particular area, not something I love to see. Um, having really high... Um, uh, having a lot of people who are in, you know, um, sort of uh, investor relations, communications, lobbying, those sorts of things, PR stuff that's pretty heavy, um, those sorts of things, or... You know, yeah, any of that kind of stuff, yeah, is, mm-hmm. is a concern for me. Even when a company, if you have a company where uh, I do notice a difference when, like, I would research companies for senior diligence. If you have a company that immediately, if you talk to any employees and stuff, is like you get referred to investor relations or something, versus companies where they'll talk to you, yeah. because that means that people in the company have been told don't talk to anyone. Um, you have to, you know, send this to this person, you know, whereas in the other companies, they'll, you know, talk freely to you means that they probably haven't been told by management not to talk to outsiders. Got it. Yeah. I was just kind of curious about that because I haven't really come into so many, um, situations where I've seen like companies spending like tons of capital and like, in like the surrounding mm-hmm. area and stuff like that. I mean, of course, like if they rebuild their headquarters or whatever, but it wasn't just to like rebuild their HQ. It was like donating buildings and like stuff like that. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in general, a lot of high-profile giving and stuff is not something that I would be that excited about seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, no. Interesting. Cool. Well, that is uh, the rest of the questions for today's podcast. If you did join us on YouTube, I want to give you a big thank you. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. What they'll do is they'll give you a notification every time we do upload a video. We're probably going to stick with this format, um, so definitely follow us along and subscribe uh, to there. Also, if you want to leave us a rating review, that helps push the word out, and Jeff and I greatly appreciate that. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. We'll see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.